He never smiled or deigned to show any kind of respect or sympathy to anyone in public. The only emotions apparent on his stone-cold face were extreme pride and utter contempt for others. So, if he remains an enigma, it is because he quite consciously chose to be one. He wanted to be regarded and treated as a superhuman demigod, the epicenter of the empire, if not of the world. That his people could have had any other goal or purpose than the glorification of their king never seems to have entered his mind. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-6, Shah Jahan's Ambitions. The Deccan Quagmire From 1630 to 1632, Gujarat, Bundokan, and the Deccan suffer through a terrible famine. This famine is known, unsurprisingly, as the Deccan Famine, and there are estimates that state over 7 million people died. Shah Jahan tried to alleviate the situation by lowering taxes by 30%. He also opened soup kitchens called langars, which were meant to feed those in need. Before Emperor Shah Jahan, both Akbar and Jahangir had tried to extend their empire into the Deccan, which basically means south. The Deccan was made up of five sultanates. These were the Nizam Shahi Sultanate of Ahmed Nagar, the Qutub Shahi of Golconda, based in Hyderabad, the Badid Shahi of Bidar, the Imad Shahi of Birar, and the Adil Shahi of Bijapur. Collectively, these five sultanates were known as the Deccan Sultanates. Emperor Akbar had managed to take the Barid Shahi Sultanate in Berar, and Emperor Jahangir had partial success in taking the Nizam Shahi Sultanate of Ahmed Nagar. However, as we mentioned in many episodes previously, Malik Ambar was able to resist the Mughals by organizing an effective guerrilla force using Hindu Marathas. So now it was Shah Jahan's turn to take a crack at the Deccan. We mentioned some of this in the previous episode. In 1632, Fatih Khan, the son of Malik Ambar, decided to throw in with the Mughals. Fatih Khan toppled the Sultan of Ahmed Nagar, threw him in prison, and later had him killed. Then he placed a puppet prince named Hussein Shah on the throne. Now, as a reward for this service, Emperor Shah Jahan granted Fatih Khan the Jagir that had previously been given to Shahaji. Shahaji, we discussed it in the previous episode. Shahaji had worked for Ahmed Nagar, then he went to work for Bijapur, then he came back to work for the Mughals, and the Mughals rewarded him by giving him some land, some Jagirs in the region. Well, now that Fatih Khan had thrown in with the Mughals, Emperor Shah Jahan took this land that had been given to Shahaji, and Shahaji, by the way, was a Maratha commander. He took away the lands that had belonged to Shahaji and gave them to Fatih Khan. This, of course, angered and frustrated Shahaji, and so he left the Mughal service and began plundering the region around Pune. Pune was Shahaji's base and his headquarters. It's located in the modern state of Maharashtra, about 70 miles southeast of the modern city of Mumbai. 
So the Mughals sent an imperial army against Shah Haji. Shah Haji, of course, fled and eventually was granted refuge by the governor of Junar. Junar was one of those Jagirs that the Mughals had previously given to Shah Haji and then taken away and given to Fatih Khan, the son of Malik Ambar. So after this uh, brief conflict with the Mughals, Shah Haji returned to the service of the Bijapur Sultanate. Meanwhile, Fatih Khan, the son of Malik Ambar, the man who had initially betrayed his own sultanate in Ahmednagar, now betrayed the Mughals and decided to break away from them. Well, Shah Jahan sent an imperial army led by General Mahabad Khan to deal with him. Mahabad Khan, always the competent general, stormed the fort at Dolatabad, which was the capital of Ahmednagar, captured and killed Fatih Khan, and then captured the puppet Sultan Hussein Shah and sent him off to Gwalior prison, where he later died. General Mahabad Khan himself would also die two years later from sickness. And so with the death of Fatih Khan and the imprisonments of the puppet Sultan uh, Hussein Shah, Ahmed Nagar was now finally fully under Mughal control. So now two Deccan Sultanates were under Mughal control with only three more to go. Akbar had taken the Berard Sultanate, as we mentioned earlier, and now Shah Jahan had completed the conquest of the Ahmed Nagar Sultanate. But the Mughals were now in a quagmire. Shah Haji, the uh, Maratha commander, he was still there. He decided to throw a wrench in the Mughals' plan, and he propped up another boy prince named Murtadha Nizam Shah as the Ahmednagar Sultan in Mahuli. Mahuli is another district in Maharashtra. So Shah Haji propped up this prince and then appointed himself as the boy's regent. Well, the Mughal imperial forces came down once again. They stormed the fort of Ahmednagar, took both Shah Haji and this young sultan prison. But for some reason, Shah Jahan decided to spare their lives. Instead of executing them, the prince, or the former sultan, I should say, the former sultan, uh, Murtaza Nizam Shah, he, of course, was no longer the sultan because Ahmednagar was a part of the Mughal empire. The sultan, he was not killed, he remained at the Mughal court, whereas Shah Haji was essentially sent into exile. He was sent deep into southern India where he couldn't cause any more trouble for the Mughals. Shah Haji obeyed, he, was, he preferred to obey than get killed, and he wound up moving to Konkan, which is a strip of uh, coastal land in western India that stretches from the Deccan region down to Karnataka. So with Shah Haji effectively in exile, he lost control of all the regions and cities and lands that he controlled back up north in the Deccan, and that included both Jannar and Nashik. Meanwhile, closer to home, Shah Jahan's sons were starting to reach adulthood and starting to take on more responsibility. In 1635, Prince Aurangzeb, who was now 16 years old, was sent to quell the rebellion of Jujar Singh. Jujar Singh was the Raja of Orcha, which is in southeast Gwalior. He was also the son of Bir Singh Dio, and as we mentioned in episode 9-2, Bir Singh Dio was the man who killed Abu Fadl, one of Akbar the Great's advisors and closest friends. So Raja Jujar Singh, he was using guerrilla tactics against the Mughals, but Aurangzeb was relentless. He relentlessly pursued and eventually ultimately defeated Raja Jujar Singh. 
And just as the campaign was starting to wind down, the campaign against Dujar Singh, that is, just as it was starting to wind down, Emperor Shah Jahan came to join in with the campaign. So once Dujar Singh was defeated, Shah Jahan punished his family ruthlessly. So after Raja Dujar Singh's defeat, a temple that his father had built that was Bir Singh Dio was destroyed. Shah Jahan ordered it destroyed and replaced with a, mas with a masjid. And then Jujar Singh's family was captured and taken to Agra. The male members of the family and the female members were separated. The women and the girls were sent to the imperial harem. The young boys, those who were underage, were sent to local families to be raised as Muslims. And the adult men of Jujar Singh's family were given the chance to accept Islam. Those that did not were executed. Shah Jahan was very pleased with his son. He traveled to Orcha to congratulate Aurangzeb on this victory against Dujar Singh. And the, and the two men, father and son, they journeyed together down to the Deccan to resume the campaign there. As we had mentioned in the previous episode, the uh, campaign in the Deccan, Shah Jahan's initial campaign into the Deccan was inter interrupted by his wife, Mumtaz Mahal's death. Mumtaz Mahal died and then uh, Shah Jahan had to take care of her burial, and then he began to uh, get together the preparations for building the Taj Mahal in her memory. So now that he was ready to resume his campaign in the Deccan, Shah Jahan ordered two sultans of the remaining Deccan sultanates, that is Bijapur and Golconda, to accept Mughal overlordship. He also ordered them to stop meddling with Ahmednagar because Ahmednagar was fully part of the, of the Mughal Empire now and also ordered them to stop supporting the Maratha rebels in the region. Well, the Sultan of Golconda, he complied and he agreed to pay tribute of 600,000 rupees on an annual basis. This essentially made him a vassal of the Mughals, but he was still independent. The Sultan of Bijapur, on the other hand, he refused and decided to go to war with the empire. Well, the Mughal Empire sent his armies down. They launched attacks from three different sides on Bijapur. And within four months, Bijapur had been beaten into submission and the Sultan agreed to a peace, to a peace treaty. And basically, he wound up agreeing to do everything that Shah Jahan had ordered him to do in the first place. But he had to pay additional reparations on top of that. So the Sultan of Bijapur recognized Mughal suzerainty. This all took place in 1636. So basically, he's a, he is submitting to the Mughals as a vassal. He promised to honor the borders of Ahmednagar and Golconda. So he basically is promising not to get involved in their internal, in their internal affairs. He also agreed to pay reparations, and he also agreed not to support the Marathas any longer. So now that Bijapur was a vassal of the Mughals, Shahaji returned to the Deccan and went into service under Bijapur. Emperor Shah Jahan appointed his son Aurangzeb as the viceroy or the governor of the Deccan. This is now 1637. Prince Aurangzeb would have been about 18, 19 years old, somewhere around there. A little bit after that, Prince Aurangzeb married a Safavid princess named Delras Banu Begum, and together they would eventually have five children. So the Deccan was essentially pacified, and Emperor Shah Jahan returned to Agra. And the Deccan would remain relatively peaceful for the next two decades. Since they didn't have to worry about the Mughals to the north, they could focus their efforts on the south, and the Deccan Sultanates, though the three remaining Deccan Sultanates, began to push further south.
Meanwhile, Shah Jahan, now that he had taken care of his southern borders by shoring up the Deccan, he was now free to focus on other concerns to the north of the empire, which we will talk about later on in this episode, inshallah. But before we can get to that, there was a tragedy back home in Agra. In 1644, Princess Jahanara suffered severe burns from a candle fire. Princess Jahanara was Shah Jahan's oldest daughter, and she had been acting as the first lady of the empire since her mother's death. Her mother was, of course, Mumtaz Mahal, for whom the Taj Mahal was built. So the princess hovered near death for about four months, and everyone thought that she might die, and this brought her brothers, including Prince Aurangzeb, back to Agra to be by her side in case he did die. So during this period, while Aurangzeb was in Agra, his older brother, Dadashiko, conspired to have him uh, uh, removed as the governor of the Deccan. Dadashiko, Shah Jahan's eldest son, was working to have Aurangzeb removed as the governor of the Deccan. For whatever reason, their father, Shah Jahan, took Dadashiko's advice and stripped Aurangzeb's rank and stipend away from him, and this was the beginning of a very deadly and really unfortunate and sad rivalry between these two brothers. Now, just let's talk about these two brothers a little bit so you understand their differences. It's going to play very heavily in future episodes of this series, inshallah. These two brothers had very stark, contrasting personalities. Prince Aurangzeb was very religious. He was a strict Sunni Muslim. Meanwhile, his older brother, Dadashiko, was very liberal. In fact, he, had been, he has been compared in some instances to their great-grandfather, Akbar the Great, and you know how wild and crazy he was with religion. Dadashiko, or just Dada, we'll call him Dada sometimes, sometimes we'll call him Dadashiko. Dadashiko has spent most of his young life at court back in Agra. So he grew up around the palace politicians, the palace courtiers. He was around people who, was all, who were always conspiring against each other, people who were always angling to gain the emperor's favor. And Dadashiko picked up their habits. So he turned into an excellent politician, an excellent court manager. Prince Aurangzeb, on the other hand, he spent most of his time either on the battlefield or governing the Deccan. So Aurangzeb had a different way. He didn't, he was, he didn't play these political games and anything like that. He was very blunt. He was very serious. Dadashiko would smile and shake hands and stab you in the back. Aurangzeb would stab you in the front. And he was very blunt and serious with it. As the oldest son, Dadashiko was expected to succeed his father. But his liberal attitude towards religion was was very concerning to the religious, to the ulama establishment of the Mughal Empire. Never forget, despite how crazy these emperors were, the Mughal Empire was an Islamic empire. The Mughal religious establishment was very concerned that if Dada Shiko became the emperor, the empire might return to the ways of Akbar the Great, if Dada Shiko ascended the throne. Now, they didn't really have to worry about that because the Mughals didn't determine the emperor by birth order. That was determined by blood and violence. Nonetheless, 
Emperor Shah Jahan, he thought he could uh, change things. He wanted to avoid the internal fighting that he had to go through in order to gain the throne. Remember, when Shah Jahan was known as Prince Kodum, he had been his father's favorite. Everyone expected him to ascend the throne, but he still had to fight and kill his brother Shahriyar and kill several of his cousins in order for him to become emperor. Emperor Shah Jahan was hoping to avoid the same situation for his sons. He had hoped that keeping Dada Shiko at court would make the transition go much smoother because he'd be around the, the court politicians and the courtiers and everyone would essentially support him and so the transition would go without any violence. But as we'll soon see, this turned out to be a false hope because Shah Jahan, he miscalculated the way things were going to work out. Yes, Dadashiko being at court in Agra, it did turn him into an excellent politician. But Aurangzeb out there fighting on the battlefield, it turned him into an excellent warrior. And in a land and time where succession was determined by who was the better fighter, the warriors would always defeat the politicians. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 1644, Shah Jahan's daughter, Jahanara, recovered from her burns, and Shah Jahan was very happy. He was so happy that he gave Aurangzeb back his titles and his rank and went on ahead and made him governor of Gujarat. A little bit later, on January 8th, 1645, Noor Jahan, the wife and courtier of Shah Jahan's father, Jahangir, passed away and was laid to rest in a mausoleum opposite from her husband, and today there is a rear line that separates the two royal tombs. Let's briefly turn our attention towards the Sikhs in this period. We haven't spoken about the Sikhs in a while, so let's do some catching up. Back in 1606 in the Punjab, Hargobind Singh was appointed as the Sikhs guru. He was the successor to Guru Arjan Singh, who was tortured and executed by Emperor Jahangir for supporting Prince Khusro's rebellion. Going to have to go back a couple of episodes, maybe two or three episodes to get all that information. Anyway... Hargobind Singh, Guru Hargobind Singh, went on to make some dramatic changes in Sikhism that would change the course for Sikhs for the next 400 years. Under Hargobind Singh's leadership, the Sikh religion underwent a dramatic transformation. It had begun as a nonviolent, mystical faith. But their conflict with the Mughals and under the guidance of Hargobind Singh, it became a militaristic faith. Guru Hargobind Singh built and trained the first Sikh army. And with this army, he rebelled against the Mughals just as Shah Jahan was becoming the emperor. This ultimately led to the Battle of Amritsar in 1634, which took place in uh, Punjab province and nor modern northwest India. The Sikhs defeated the Mughals in this battle, but the Mughals sent reinforcements and ultimately forced Hargobind Singh to retreat into the Shivalik Hills. The Shivalik Hills are on the edge of the Himalaya mountain range, and Hargobind Singh wound up staying there until his death in 1644. Before he died, the Sikhs still needed a leader, and his grandson, Dir Mal, who kind of assumed leadership during this time, tried to reconcile an ally with the Mughals and with Emperor Shah Jahan. However, Hargobind Singh, while he was still alive, he disagreed with this, and before he died, he nominated 
Har Rai as his successor as the next guru. Har Rai was Har Gobind Singh's grandson's Jeremiah's younger brother. All this is going to become much more important later on in this series, but just catching you up to the Sikhs and the Mughals as we are right now. We'll come back to them, inshallah, in a few episodes. Shah Jahan's Economy The Mughal Empire really hit its stride in wealth and stability during the reign of Emperor Jahangir, that is Shah Jahan's father. And because of these success and the stability and the wealth that had been accumulated during Jahangir's reign, this allowed Shah Jahan to spend lavishly. So, for instance, the first Nowruz or New Year celebration under Shah Jahan was very opulent and festive. There were expensive gifts given, given to the royals and the nobles. And there's some estimates that one day of partying had cost at least 160 million rupees. Thing is that Shah Jahan, he was obsessed with finery and opulence and jewelry. And we can see all this from his from his design of the peacock throne. We described how how extravagant and opulent that thing was. We mentioned all the many building projects and the care and the the attention that was given to the Taj Mahal and how expensive that must have been. But all of this came at a high cost, mostly taxes on the people on the masses of the Mughal Empire. In order to maintain Emperor Shah Jahan's exorbitant spending, taxes continued to increase on the common folks. In addition to all of these building projects and, and vanity pieces that Shah Jahan was building, he also had to maintain the Mughal army. It was a huge army. He had to maintain the army. This large government bureaucracy that had been put in place since the time of uh, Akbar the Great, and in addition to all that, making things even worse was rampant corruption throughout the empire. Now, there are some historians that say that this increase of taxes led to many wealthy merchants leaving Mughal territory to go settle in other areas that had lower taxes. And in order to make up for this shortfall, the Mughal administration was forced to increase taxes on those who remained behind. Listen to this excerpt that discusses this situation. Rai Baramai, a historian, the former Diwan to Prince Dadashiko, writing during Aurangzeb's reign, 1658-1707, proudly stated that imperial revenue under Shah Jahan had trebled since the days of Akbar, but simultaneously admitted, apparently without realizing the dramatic implication, that expenditure had grown fourfold. This kind of conspicuous consumption at the top was the result not of economic progress, but of increasingly oppressive tax collection, itself much worsened by corruption and illegal extortions by an increasingly unscrupulous and bloated bureaucratic apparatus. In spite of charitable initiatives here and there, there was an appalling and widening gap between the ostentatious glamour of the ruling classes and the wretched squalor and poverty in which the masses were forced to live. The result was a ruinous, vicious cycle, a downward spiral of economic decline with a steady exodus of peasants and merchants from the land, followed by increasing extortion and oppression of those left behind. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India. So now we got that, listen to this other perspective from a different book by a different historian. 
During his 51-year reign, Akbar had amassed large amounts of treasure, but Jahangir had expended most of that reserve during his 22-year reign. Shah Jahan had overcome this difficulty and succeeded in bringing great prosperity to the empire. To build up his reserves, the emperor stipulated that the imperial khalisa should be set at 1,200 million dams, equivalent to 30 million rupees. This meant that nearly one-seventh of the annual revenues were funneled directly into the imperial treasury. This was a greater sum than had ever been made available for the central treasury. Despite large expenditures on the military and for benefactions, Shah Jahan, since ascending the throne, had accumulated reserves worth 95 million rupees, half in coin and half in jewelry and other valuables. And he had spent 25 million rupees in the construction of grand buildings such as masjids, palaces, forts, tombs, hunting retreats and gardens in Delhi, Agra, Lahore, Kabul, and other parts of the empire. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire. Now these two excerpts give very different assessments of the Mughal Empire's financial health during Shah Jahan's reign. One excerpt makes it seem as if they were teetering on the edge of financial ruin, while the other makes it seem like the Mughals were doing just fine. Now, I personally have tried to get at the truth of the matter. I've done some research, but I found myself getting pulled way off course, and it would take a lot more research than I could really spare for this single episode. But from what I've gathered, and I, I will admit that I haven't done enough research to come to a firm determination of this, it appears that the truth is somewhere in the middle, especially when we see what happens after Shah Jahan dies. It appears that the Mughal Empire was doing well enough to maintain its bureaucracy and maintain its military and maintain Shah Jahan's lavish lifestyle. But the regular people were starting to feel the strain especially the poorest amongst the empire. It was kind of like a slow boil, but not so bad that the entire structure would come crashing down all at once. Kandahar in Central Asia Emperor Shah Jahan may have had some lingering guilt about Kandahar and the fact that it was still in Persian hands. It's a brief recap of the uh, history of Kandahar during the Mughal Empire so far. Back in episode 9-1, we mentioned how the Persian governor of Kandahar was worried that the Uzbeks would invade. Akbar the Great had sent an expedition to Kandahar and the governor of Kandahar submitted without a fight because he preferred to live under Akbar's rule than the Uzbek's rule. Of course, the Persians didn't like this, and in episode 9-4, the Safavids under Emperor Shah Abbas besieged Kandahar, capturing it in the spring of 1622, and this led to a series of overly polite letters between Jahangir and Shah Abbas. We mentioned all this in previous episodes. Also in that same episode, we mentioned how Jahangir ordered Shah Jahan, who was then known as Prince Kudum, to go and retake the city of Kandahar. But along the way, Prince Kodum changed his mind because he was thinking that his father and his stepmother were working against him, and that led to him rebelling against his father. And from then up to this point in the story, the Mughals had not yet been able to retake Kandahar. Now in 1638, 
the Persian governor of Kandahar, a man named Ali Mardan Khan, surrendered the city to the Mughals. He was becoming somewhat unpopular and disliked within the Safavid dynasty. And when he did this, when he just handed Kandahar over to the Mughals, just like his predecessor had done several years earlier, he was richly rewarded by Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan went and appointed him as governor of Kashmir and then later added the Punjab to his domain. So Ali Mardan Khan came away like a bandit on this deal. The Safavid emperor, whose name was Shah Safi, who was also the grandson of Shah Abbas, he was not able to respond immediately to this sudden loss of territory. He was too busy dealing with an internal rebellion while at the same time fighting the Ottoman Empire to his west. So he was kind of tied down for the time being. However, in 1648, Shah Safi's son and successor, Shah Abbas II, came to the throne and he began to lead a Persian resurgence. This is going to be important in a few minutes, but for now, let's continue discussing Shah Jahan's ambitions to the north. So Shah Jahan wants to expand northwards from Kandahar onto Samarkand. And the opportunity came in 1646 when the Uzbeks who controlled Samarkand started having a, a war within themselves, a civil war. So Shah Jahan used this opportunity to launch a new campaign to expand the Mughal Empire into Central Asia. This new campaign was led by his son, Prince Murad Baksh, and the former Safavid governor, the guy we mentioned earlier, Ali Mardan Khan, who had handed Kandahar over to the Mughals. So the Mughal army easily occupied Balkh and Badakhshan. Both of these are near the border between what is modern Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. From there, the Mughals went on ahead and crossed the Oxus River and occupied Turdemiz in, Uz in Uzbekistan. Throughout this whole period, the Mughal army, the imperial army, advanced and moved with very little resistance from the Uzbeks, and they were able to fulfill Emperor Shah Jahan's ambitions for territorial expansion. But soon, Shah Jahan would have to deal with the consequences of his ambitious plans. Prince Murad Baksh refused to take the campaign any further than Turdemese. He refused to campaign in the, the harsh, cold, barren Central Asian highlands, which is kind of weird because that was actually where the Mughals originated from. Uh, Babur, the founder of the Mughal dynasty, was from this region. Anyway... Prince Murad Baksh refused to campaign any further, and he eventually abandoned the campaign and returned to Lahore. Well, this naturally set a bad example for the other soldiers under his command, and before long, a Rajput contingent also deserted the campaign. Emperor Shah Jahan back in Agra was very frustrated, so he sent his son, Prince Aurangzeb, to take charge of the campaign in 1647. But despite Aurangzeb's arrival, the troops kept deserting and the situation grew dire. No matter what Prince Aurangzeb tried to do, the army's morale was crumbling and there was very little he could do to rebuild it. And the remaining soldiers had serious doubts about the success of this campaign. Now why was this? Prince Aurangzeb, he had arrived and he displayed great piety and great courage. And there's a famous story of, his, of him making salat, of him praying in the middle of battle. 
And the Mughals achieved some major victories, but despite all of this success, despite Prince Aurangzeb's courage and his valor, the campaign in Central Asia turned into a brutal stalemate. I've seen it compared to the Soviet-Afghan War, which, by the way, by the way, if you want to uh, learn more about the Soviet-Afghan War, join Islamic History Exclusive. Quick plug, we have uh, the entire thing, 10 episodes on it. All right, back to the Mughals. So it has been compared to the Soviet-Afghan War, where the Mughals will, would win these major battles, but they were constantly being harassed by Uzbek ambushes and sneak attacks. Eventually, the Uzbeks were able to force Prince Aurangzeb's demoralized and beleaguered troops to retreat. As they retreated, Prince Aurangzeb negotiated a respectful peace treaty with the Uzbeks. He restored the city of Bakh to the Uzbek ruler in exchange for his nominal submission. And that was it. The campaign was a complete disaster. The Mughals had spent huge amounts of money on this campaign and got very little bit in return. Hundreds of men were killed in battle, and many more just died from the harsh cold of Central Asia. And throughout all of this, no territory was gained. Well, the Mughal humiliations in Central Asia continued as Kandahar was now facing a Persian siege. The new Safavid emperor, Shah Abbas II, he demanded the Mughals return Kandahar immediately. And we have already discussed why the Safavids felt that Kandahar was rightfully theirs. We mentioned that early in this episode and in previous episodes. What surprised the Mughals, however, was that the Safavids sent an army to besiege Kandahar in the winter of 1648. Now, the Mughal garrison in Kandahar had lots of provisions. They had a strong force of 7,000 men, and they shouldn't have been able to stick it out until the empire was able to send reinforcements. But for some reason, they panicked and surrendered to the Safavids in less than two months in early 1649. This was another humiliating setback for the Mughal Empire. Emperor Shah Jahan was shocked and outraged at this second major loss in less than two years. So he immediately sent his son, Prince Aurangzeb, to relieve Kandahar. But by the time Aurangzeb arrived at Kandahar with the army, the city had already been surrendered to the Safavids for over three months. That means the Safavids were well prepared by the time Prince Aurangzeb arrived with his army. The Mughals, on the other hand, were not so prepared. And they were not able to make any significant gains against the Persians. And eventually, Prince Aurangzeb had to withdraw in disgrace yet again. Well, Shah Jahan, not to be outdone, he prepared yet another powerful army, another large army in 1652, and sent them out there. He gave them all these fancy, costly guns, but the operation failed yet again. The guns didn't really perform well. The Persian defenders of Kandahar, they were masters in artillery warfare, something they had learned from fighting the Ottomans for so many years. And the Mughals were defeated yet again. Emperor Shah Jahan blamed this defeat on his son, Prince Aurangzeb, and sent him back to the Deccan uh, in virtual exile in a way, somewhat exile, but sent him back to the Deccan in humiliation and disgrace. 
From this point forward, Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb's relationship was ruined. They grew estranged. They never reconciled. I don't even think they saw each other from ever again. After after Aurangzeb left for the Deccan, I don't believe they ever even saw each other again. Meanwhile, back in Agra, Shah Jahan's oldest son, Darashiko, claimed that he could take the city if he was given the chance. Well, the emperor gave him the chance, but he also failed after a five-month siege. Meanwhile, back in the Deccan. So while the Mughals were busy getting their butt kicked in Central Asia, the Marathas were busy in the Deccan. After he had been defeated by the Mughals, Shahaji, that is the Maratha commander we mentioned earlier, went to serve the Sultanate of Bijapur in the Deccan. He began expanding Bijapur's influence and territory south towards Bangalore. Bangalore is in the southern part of the modern Indian state of Karnataka. So Shahaji ruled Bangalore as an autonomous prince under the Bijapur Sultanate's allegiance. Now Shahaji had to remain in the south because of the, the treaty that existed between the Mughal Empire and the Bijapur Sultanate. So Shahaji had to remain in the south in Bangalore, but he was, he was allowed to retain his estate in Pune, which we had mentioned was about 70 miles south of Mumbai, way to the north in the Deccan. So since Shahaji could not manage his estate in Pune, he had his son Shivaji remain behind and manage Pune and the rest of his territory. So Shivaji is really handling his father Shahaji's estates in the Deccan. In 1646, the Sultan of Bijapur got sick and Shivaji, the son of Shahaji, used this as an opportunity to start acting independently. He began by capturing various territories in the immediate region of Pune. And this expanded his realm, but it did so at the expense of the Sultan of Bijapur, whom his father was supposed to be subservient to. Shivaji wound up capturing all these forts like the Torna Fort, the Raigad Fort, Supa, Chakan, Indapur, Baramati, Kondana Fort, and Purandar Fort. Shivaji used the excuse, he claimed that these raids and these captures of these conquests were meant to maintain law and order near his Pune estate. But the thing is that he also attacked regions that were clearly outside of his territories. So this naturally angered the Sultan of Bijapur, who took it out on the father, Shahaji, imprisoned him and seized his estates in Bangalore. So now the son, Shivaji, way up in the Deccan, he realizes that his actions had gotten his father in trouble, and so he decides to seek help from the Mughal Empire. So Shivaji goes through Prince Murad Baksh and asks him to have his father intervene in the situation. Emperor Shah Jahan, he does get involved. Shivaji joins the Mughal service with 5,000 men. Under Mughal pressure, Shahaji, his father, is eventually released, and as soon as he is released, Shivaji resumes his raids against Bijapur. Shivaji is going to play a huge role in the story going forward. This is not his only time betraying the Muslims of Deccan, whether it's the, the Deccan Sultanates or the Mughals. Shivaji is relentless. His story is crazy. Inshallah, we'll get to it in future episodes. All right, so now Aurangzeb, he has to return to the Deccan in 1653. He is essentially in exile. He's in disgrace. It's not really exile, I guess, because he's still ruling on behalf of his father, but his father wants him as far away from Agra as possible. 
So Aurangzeb, Prince Aurangzeb arrives in the Deccan and he sees that the Deccan province is in poor financial and administrative condition. The region has suffered under various low-quality, incompetent interim governors and a lack of funds from the central government in Agra. So Prince Aurangzeb immediately gets to work to try to improve the situation. He reaches out to his father and asks for financial assistance. Emperor Shah Jahan refuses and declines his request. And so Prince Aurangzeb has to get help somewhere else. So he enlists the help of a man named Murashid Kuli Khan to help improve the revenue collection of the Deccan. Murashid Kuli Khan had been born a Hindu but had later on converted to Shia Islam. He introduced various reforms into Aurangzeb's governorship of the Deccan that helped to bring more prosperity to the region. Let's read this excerpt that explains some of the details. To aid recovery after the ravages of war and famine, Murshid Kuli Khan set in motion a vigorous program. He recruited headmen and settlers for deserted villages, granted loans for seed and cattle, gave loans to dig wells or build river embankments for irrigation, and he assured the peasantry of continued peace and security. Parties of revenue surveyors and assessors carefully recorded holdings, irrigation facilities, and arable and wastelands. More remote, Hilly villages were left to lump sum payments per plow or allowed to pay the revenue by a share of the crops. But the majority of villages underwent a revenue survey and were assessed in cash according to the ZAPT regulations. Murashid Kuli Khan's system formed the basis for all subsequent Deccan revenue assessments, Mughal and Maratha, until the British conquest in the early 19th century. John F. Richards the Mughal Empire. Now, these measures by Murashid Kuli Khan were long-term measures. It will take a while for the Deccan to really begin to reap the benefits of these reforms that Murashid Kuli Khan was bringing. This was not going to meet Prince Aurangzeb's immediate financial needs. Aurangzeb knew that the fastest way to regain his military reputation and acquire wealth was to conquer new territories. In the next episode, inshallah, we'll discuss Prince Aurangzeb's efforts to subdue the remaining holdouts in the Deccan as another fratricidal war looms in the distance. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. 
and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War, and this is Episode 1-6. All right, let's begin by discussing the political climate in the United States. In the late 70s, as I mentioned in previous series, particularly the one on the Iranian Revolution, the United States was in a malaise. It was still suffering from what many called Vietnam Syndrome after its somewhat humiliating retreat and withdrawal from Vietnam during, of course, the Vietnam War. The country was also disillusioned by the Watergate scandal and the alleged crimes of President Richard Nixon, and it had also recently been humiliated during the Iran hostage crisis. The president in the late 1970s was Jimmy Carter. The Jimmy Carter before the Soviet invasion was very different from the Jimmy Carter after the invasion. Before the invasion, Jimmy Carter had begun to purge the CIA of its many rogue agents. The CIA during this period of time, and even in the decade before in the late 60s, the CIA had come under a lot of suspicion and scrutiny. That's because it was at the center of several scandals, particularly during the 1970s. There were allegations that the CIA participated in drug trafficking in Southeast Asia. They did this in order to fund their own anti-communist rebels in China and Laos. The CIA had also been found to have been spying on Americans. And even though it didn't come out at this time, it came out many, many years later. The CIA also supported Augusto Pinochet, the leader of the Chilean coup that overthrew the democratically elected government, installed the repressive government of Pinochet, and led to the deaths of thousands of Chileans. Also, before the invasion of Afghanistan, President Jimmy Carter had cut off all financial aid going to Ziaul Haq in Pakistan, particularly after the execution of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. And finally, President Carter had downplayed the threat of the Soviet Union. He had also gone so far as to negotiate the SALT II Treaty with the Soviet Union, which was intended to reduce ballistic missiles. However, after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter's attitude changed completely. He became much more aggressive towards the Soviet Union. The U.S., for instance, boycotted the Olympics in Moscow in 1980. Jimmy Carter also began building up the country's military. He also prohibited the sale of grain to the Soviet Union. And he also introduced a plan to defend the Middle East and its oil fields from any Soviet incursions. Another big change was that Jimmy Carter ordered the CIA to begin operations against Soviet interests, particularly in Afghanistan. To fulfill this request from the president, 
the CIA began sending some of its huge stockpile of Soviet weapons to Afghanistan for the Afghan Mujahideen to use against the Soviet troops. The CIA preferred to use Soviet weapons in these uh, rebellions and all of their little devious shadowy dealings in order to prevent things from tracing back to the United States. So they wouldn't use American-made weapons. They would use Soviet-made weapons. The CIA began doing this almost immediately after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And Jimmy Carter also changed his attitude towards Yaul Haq of Pakistan. He now began to negotiate with Yaul Haq in order to use Pakistan as a base of operations against the Soviets. But Ziaul Haq, he knew the United States had had a record of abandoning its allies. For instance, South Vietnam just a few years earlier. And as we know, in our time, the United States also turned against Saddam Hussein in the, 19, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, really. And most recently, how the United States turned against both the Kurds in Syria, as well as the, uh, the U.S. puppet state set up in Afghanistan in 2021. Ziaul Haq demanded that everything go through Pakistani intelligence. So anything the CIA or the United States wanted to do in Afghanistan, it had to go through the ISI. The CIA's plan in all of this was not really to defeat the Soviet Union. Neither the CIA nor the United States or Jimmy Carter, none of them really had any illusions that the Afghan Mujahideen had any chance of defeating the Soviet Union. They were hoping to frustrate the Soviets, but the support that the CIA and even Pakistan was providing to the Afghan rebels during this time was very minimal in the big scheme of things. 